You know, in heaven, that song never ends. And even as it's sung for eternity, it still can't capture the fullness of his glory. The old song says, if I could speak in 10,000 tongues, it still would not be enough to capture who he is. You know, when we come and we worship and we talk about magnifying the Lord, it's, it's never that we are magnifying God himself. It's just that we are opening our mind a little bit more of who he is. He can't change. He can't get any bigger, any better. He is God from eternity to eternity. But I'm grateful that in our times of worships, we can get to know him more and more. And it's a, a continual process. At this time, I'll go ahead and dismiss the youth. And I think that's it. Littles are already out for Christmas practice. Not all. Okay, if you have younger kids who are going to be participating, they can go to practice. Otherwise, everyone else, you're stuck with me. So if you will grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Psalms, then we're going to be looking at Psalms chapter 23. Now, if I had to guess, I could probably ask you to just start reading it. Most of you would be able to uh, quote it, if not word for word, pretty close. It's, it's definitely a psalm that's mentioned often. It's something that most people have heard at least once, if not many, many, many more times. Psalms chapter 23, and we're just going to read the first three verses to start here. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. For just a little bit tonight, I want to talk to you on this, this simple topic coming from the book of Psalms, the shepherd. The shepherd. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have our minds open and our hearts open to receive your word, that it will fall on good ground and bring forth fruit in due season. I rebuke every spirit of distraction, every tool of the enemy that would take us away from the truth of your word. Help us, O oh God, to hide that word within our hearts that we would not sin against you. We give you all the glory and all of the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So tonight, um, Pastor Lucas, this is his month, as you guys have kind of known, each month we're doing a different theme and a different speaker, and he had to uh, go out of town, and I figured it was only fair the amount of times I've had to ask someone to cover for me in school to, to pay it back a little bit. So I asked, I asked Pastor Lucas, I said, okay, well, what are, you, what are you teaching on this month? And he said, the book of Psalms. And I said, wait a minute, the book of Psalms that Pastor Powell spent two years and nine books covering, you want me to say something else than what he's already said? So, temper your expectations just a little bit. But the good thing is, is the truth of God is always growing and no one can cover it all by themselves. So, I am excited though to talk a little bit uh, from the book of Psalms tonight on the topic of the shepherd, but let me set just a little bit of, of, of some background information before we jump into this uh, chapter specifically. So, as many of you know, Psalms is a collection of lyrical poems. Uh, it's one of only two Old Testament books that identifies itself as having multiple authors. 
Proverbs being the other. Some psalms name their author in the line, so, such as a psalm from Asaph, referencing David or whoever. There's multiple names that get mentioned throughout the 150, plus, or 150 psalms. Um, we know for sure that 90 of them um, were written by David. We know that there was Ethan, Solomon wrote at least one. We know Asaph wrote several. But what's something that was kind of interesting to me that maybe I'd heard once upon a time but hadn't thought about for, for a long time was that it is widely believed that the entire collection, meaning from the time that the first psalm was being written to the time that the final psalm was being written, covers up to a span of approximately 1,000 years. Now, it's somewhat of a theory. It's what we know based on information we have. But I'll tell you why that, to me, immediately jumped off the pages. Because I imagine, like many other people, we think of the book of Psalms, we think of David, right? We think of David being the one who wrote it, and we, we look at the chronicles of his kingship, and even before he became a king. And that's what we often look at the book of Psalms through that lens. So when we talk about how the, the Psalms have laments or lamentations, basically crying of, of, of fear, despair, or unknown, or of hurt, we think of that often in the context of David having those moments, which he had plenty. We also think of Psalms in the context of, of, of taking courage in the face of the enemy and having faith and believing that God will do what he said he would do, that he would go before us and win the battle and he would be victorious. We think of that in the context of King David. And while all of that is true, the actual beautiful part of the book of Psalms is all of those principles cover the whole nation of Israel as well as mankind in general. Meaning, God wasn't just the peace giver to David. God wasn't just the provider for David. God wasn't just someone who would hear the laments and cries of David, but that he intends for all of his sheep to experience that same level of closeness with him. I love that because sometimes, and I am definitely being guilty of this, sometimes when we read certain things like this, we think of it in the context of, of, of a person, and we can almost maybe put that person kind of like up a little bit on a pedestal. They're this historic, like, storied figure that is almost separate from reality for us. But when we realize that, no, no, the book of Psalms covers multiple generations of people, that the same things that David faced in his life is the same things that his son and his children faced and those who came before David. That is part of the human condition. And the great thing is, is that God has been consistent throughout all of that. And he is still that same God now. So now let me read Psalms 23, the whole, whole chapter, all six verses. And then we're going to watch a real short video just because for context, I think it does a really good job of explaining this. So Psalms 23, I'm going to read the whole six, and it says this. The Lord is my shepherd. And I'll tell you a secret. Whenever I read passages like this, sometimes I like to reread it multiple times. So I would read it like this. The Lord is my shepherd. Maybe the next time I would say the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. You see, all of it's true, 
sometimes we need God to be different things at different times in our lives. And this is the beauty of his word that I could have read this verse a hundred times over. But in my moment of greatest need, God will bring to light that aspect that maybe I hadn't thought about in some time. And show himself alive in that way again. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Look to your screens here. Watch a short video. As part of the shepherd lesson, I did want to look at one thing in the wilderness that will maybe surprise you a bit. Believe it or not, this is called wilderness, midbar, but it's also called green pastures. Now, when you take a Westerner here the first time and you look at this, you find people say, well, I don't know that I can go there because the Psalm 23, the Lord leads me into green pastures has been pictured as belly deep alfalfa. Well, you haven't seen any belly deep alfalfa. And from biblical time to today, it's rare to see a flock in the farm country. There isn't a lot of farm country in this culture. And so farmers kept the shepherds out as much as they could. Maybe they would come in a little bit after the harvest to glean what was left, but you don't want sheep where you can farm. This is the land of the shepherd. Right on the hillside across from us, you can see those grazing trails cut there by sheep maybe as long ago as Abraham's time. They're spaced so that an animal on one path and an animal on another can reach right to the middle between them. That determines the distance, so you can graze an entire hillside. And the shepherds lead their sheep across that hillside slowly, grazing what's there. Now, you look at it from here and you say, what's there? In fact, I remember my first impression. I woke up one morning, I was sleeping out in the wilderness, and I remember waking up, watching a flock of sheep on a hillside like this, and my, re my feeling was, what are those rock-eating sheep? I mean, what do they eat? How can you call this green pastures? Well, the answer is, there's a small amount of moisture present here. They get a little bit of rain every year, not much, but a little. Second, there is humidity in the air, especially in the evening breeze, like right now, you can feel it. Coming from the west off the Mediterranean, there's moisture in the air. That moisture, combination of the rain and the humidity, 
condenses or drips along the edge of these rocks here. And if you notice, right around the rocks, almost always next to the rocks, you get little tufts of green. Get one a moment. That's what we refer to as the green pastures. So the shepherd looks for a hillside. That's exactly what she was doing. Look at that flock across from us there, just stunning. Those two shepherd girls have found a hillside that either was exposed to the wind or had that small amount of rain. And they move that flock across the hillside and it's one mouthful here, walk a step or two, another mouthful, another mouthful, another mouthful. Now that changes the green pasture image a little bit besides the picture changing radically. Green pastures are not everything you need for the rest of your life. If you make that belly deep alfalfa, then what God is saying, if you follow me, I'm gonna plunk you down and you'll never have to move an inch the rest of your life. Just reach out and grab it. Tell me that your life with God has been like that. Worry, said one rabbi, is dealing with tomorrow's problems on today's pasture. In the desert, you learn, the shepherd will get you what you need for right now. 10 minutes from now, you trust the shepherd just enough. Talk about change your perception a little bit. You know, in, in today's world where we are always inundated by the prosperity message of God wants you to drive a Rolls Royce and have a private jet, seems to kind of fly in the face of what that is. And I, I would like to say that I know the exact reasoning why God does it that way. I don't. But I can tell you, at least I know this much, that this place is not our final destination. And I think what we have to be careful about is wanting God to bless us to be so comfortable now that we become unwilling to move when the shepherd starts calling us to another place. Right? I worry that our church in general, and I don't mean here, I'm talking at large, but specifically within this country, a country that has so much. You know, you'll see people complaining on the news about all these issues, but if they only knew, if they ever were to go to some of the places that I've been, and some of the places if you've been in the military and you've gone to some of these other countries and you realize, like, the poorest people, for the most part in our country, still have it better than the vast majority of the rest of the world. But here's the thing that can happen to us spiritually is that we can become so accustomed to, if you will, the overflow that we aren't always feeling that desperation. So we don't hear the voice of the shepherd calling us somewhere else because we have all that we think we need now. But the truth is, is that a good shepherd doesn't only look for the sheep today. That's our job. We worry about now because that's all we can do. We worry the shepherd will do what we needs to happen now. But the shepherd looks beyond that moment to where the next is going to come from. Because the shepherd is leading the sheep to a destination. A destination that the sheep themselves cannot know how to get on their own. They only need to know how to be strong enough for now. So we talk about trusting God this is what we mean. That we all face hardships and we face moments and struggles and fears and all of those things. 
And it doesn't take away from the temporary emotion of it, but what we should always remind ourselves is that when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, I want to tell you about two other things that always jumps out when I read this passage. It says that thy rod and thy staff comfort me. I always used to think that was a little weird, thy rod and thy staff. Why, why the delineation? If you, if you were to look at a shepherd's staff, most of the time there's only one thing that they're holding. But within that staff, generally there was kind of two parts of it. There was the rod that was used to protect the sheep as well as to nudge them in the right direction when they wouldn't listen to the shepherd. And then there was also the staff to guide them. And in these moments of, of fear and uncertainty, in these moments of struggle, we have to know that sometimes God allows things to take place that feel uncomfortable because it's the rod that we need in the moments that help us pay attention to where the staff is pointing us to. And so the writer here recognizes that it's the shepherd's responsibility to move the sheep into safety. And so the writer says that thy rod and thy staff comfort me because even though it may hurt momentarily, I'm comforted knowing that the shepherd is looking out for me and moving me to where I need to be. So even in the moment of correction, I can have comfort in that correction because it's the shepherd doing what the shepherd does. Okay. Let's go to Numbers 27. I don't know if I'll be able to get through all of this. I have one more video I would like to show at the very end. We'll see. Numbers 27, because I, when thinking about what to talk about tonight in the book of Psalms, there's so much content that you can look at. But this notion, this idea of the shepherd kind of jumped out to me. And part of the reason it jumped out to me is, yes, there's Psalms 23 that we read. But from Genesis to Revelation... Every book, for the most part, either directly references this shepherd-sheep comparison analogy or at least indirectly refers to this shepherd-sheep uh, offset, if you will. So look here at Old Testament, Numbers chapter 27, 16 um, and 17. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, which may go out before them, and which may go in before them, and which may lead them out, and which may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which has no shepherd. Just remember that last little phrase there, that they would not be as sheep which have no shepherd. Just kind of lock that away for just a moment here. So what's happening here is in the book of Numbers, we know that this is kind of uh, uh, there. The children of Israel were in Egypt. They were, they were delivered from Egypt. They've been wandering in the wilderness. And they're kind of beginning to develop that relationship with God and kind of understanding the background and the things that they need. And so here in Numbers, what we see is God appointing a person to be the shepherd, if you will, over the nation of Israel, and that, that the job of that shepherd was to ensure that those sheep would go out and in as was appropriate, that they would be led into the right direction. Now, if you're like me, I thought, I was like, oh, that's really cool, but, but wait a minute. I thought God's the shepherd. 
right? The Bible says that Jesus is the good shepherd. We see Old Testament references that God is the shepherd. And then I have to tell you that video that I happened to stumble upon today, I had seen another version of it at some point, but that video, there was something that happened in that video that just clicked. When the gentleman was talking and he was explaining how that the shepherds would, would lead the sheep over these hillsides, he turned back and he saw in that moment two young girls leading these sheep over this hill. And he called them shepherd girls just because they were girls, but they were shepherds. King David, when David sat on the hillside, he was a boy still. But he was referred to as a shepherd because many times the children of shepherds also, if you will, take on that role in doing the job for that parent, right? So in David's case, the dad, if you will, he was the shepherd. David understood his role to be beneath or, or below his father, to respect his father. And so David did what his father did, and he was responsible for the sheep. We know, of course, that the Bible talks about how that David protected the sheep from wolves and all of these different things. So was David a more important shepherd than his father? No, but he understood the responsibility given to him by his father, who is the shepherd. And this is what we see right here in Numbers. God is the shepherd. The church is his flock. We are his sheep. But being the good shepherd means that he also will put people in our lives at different times to assist, if you will, in that shepherding process. People that we need to help us move along in the right direction. It doesn't take away from the sovereignty of God, not at all. But what it illustrates is his love and mercy that he would take more than one approach, if you will, to ensure that the sheep listen to the voice of the shepherd. So now what we, we saw there was there was a concern um, that, that they wanted to make sure the children of Israel didn't become sheep with no shepherd. Okay, now go to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 1. I'll go through. I'm going to skip a little bit, but make a point here. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Ye eat the fat, and ye clothe you with, wool, with the wool. Ye kill them that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. The, disease, the diseased have ye not strengthened, neither have ye healed that which was sick, neither have ye bound up that which was broken, neither have ye brought again that which was driven away, and neither have ye sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have ye ruled them. And they were scattered because there is no shepherd. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. Verse 6, my sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth and none did search or seek after them. 
So I don't want to give it away, but I just want you to kind of listen to the themes that are happening here. We have God mentioning the importance of the shepherd looking out for his sheep. That the thing that will destroy the sheep is if the sheep end up with no shepherd. And then he comes to these rulers here now in the book of Ezekiel, and he tells Ezekiel, you tell them, the ones that are supposed to be shepherding my sheep, that they feed themselves, they clothe themselves with the very best of raiment, but they give nothing to my sheep. And because of that, now my sheep are scattered. My sheep have not been healed or, or delivered. They have not been cared for or fed. And God is angry because his sheep have been left unattended. And even more insult to injury was here in verse 6 when he said that my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth and none did search or seek after them. It was bad enough that they let them get scattered. But then they didn't even bother to try and go find them. Let's go to 1 Kings 22. 1 Kings 22, starting in verse 1. And they continued three years without war between Syria and Israel. And it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. So just so you kind of know where we are historically within, within Israel's timeline here, we are still at the moment where Judah and Israel proper are separated into two territories. Both territories have their own king. And that's what we see here, that we have Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, who comes down to the king of Israel. And in the first verse there, it says there had been three years without war between Syria and Israel. If you've heard me teach any time, especially Old Testament, one of the big um, failures, if you will, of Israel was over and over again, turning to the enemy for protection against another enemy. And how that they constantly turn back and forth between different members of what would be considered an enemy instead of trusting God. And that's where we see now. So here we go. Jehoshaphat comes down to talk to the king of Israel. Verse 3, And the king of Israel said unto his servant, Know ye that Ramoth and Gilead is ours, and we be still, and take it not out of the hand of the king of Syria. And he said unto Jehoshaphat, Will thou go with me to battle to Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Pause right here. because you need, you need to see what just happened. So here we have these two kingdoms, which should be one. We have Jehoshaphat, and then we have the king over Israel. Now, Jehoshaphat comes down to the larger kingdom in Israel. And here this king says to Jehoshaphat, hey, this land over here, that's ours. God promised that to us. So why aren't we doing anything about it? Why are we just like sitting here? God said that's ours. And so Jehoshaphat wanting to save face, he says, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I agree. Whatever you think that's right, yes, let's do that. My horses are yours. My men are yours. But then listen to what happened in verse 5. And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Why did Jehoshaphat have to turn to someone else to inquire into the word of God? 
why was Jehoshaphat, who was the king of Judah, which, by the way, was supposed to be the man of praise, why is it that this king has to ask someone else on his behalf to look to the word of God? All right, let's look at verse 6, and we're going to find out exactly why. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said unto them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides that we may inquire of him? And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. So what has happened is the prophets that are here are not really prophets because what they have done is basically whatever the king is asking, oh, yes, the king, yeah, God's on your side. You go do whatever you think it is, and God will, will be victorious no matter what. And so Jehoshaphat, not even recognizing what he's doing yet, says, is there anyone else? So... Here, the king says, yeah, 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 there's this one of the guys. Man, you do not want to hear him. He's a Debbie Downer, man. He's always so cynical. He's always, like, saying that things aren't going to work out. And, and, and Jehoshaphat's like, well, okay, let's just see what he has to say. Verse 9, then the king of Israel called an officer and said, hasten hither Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, set each on his throne, having put on their robes in a void place in the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets prophesied before them. And Zedekiah, the son of this other person, who I'm not even going to try to say, made him horns of iron, and he said, Thus saith the Lord, With these shalt thou push the Syrians until thou hast consumed them. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the king's hand. Verse 13, And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spake unto him, saying, Behold now the words of the prophets. Declare good unto the king with one mouth. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. So, here we have these prophets. Prophets. And one of the prophets grabs this metal horn and he says, he gives this analogy. Like, oh yeah, you see this, this metal horn here full with oil and anointing? With this, you're going to push back the enemy out of the lands. Have you ever seen, oh, let's say someone on YouTube or someone um, saying that they are a prophet of God and the only way that I can make sure that you're healed is I'm going to kick you in the stomach. Now, that sounds absolutely ridiculous, but I kid you not, I watched that take place, not in person. But, and I'm like, how do you get to, to that? I'll tell you how. Because that person only had people around him who would say what he needed, or, or should I say what he wanted to hear. And so now this is where we find the current king, that he only has people around him who are going to say the good things that the king wants to hear. Why? Because as long as the king's happy, the prophets are happy. They're fed, they're clothed, they don't have to work. So it pays to keep, the, keep this, this king happy, even if we're lying. 
And so now they bring in this prophet and the guy's like, hey, listen, I know you have a reputation of like kind of being the contrarian, but can you just say what these other people said so that we can keep riding the gravy train here and not have to do anything? Now, we pick back up. Verse 14, and Micaiah said, as the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. So he came to the king, and the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go up against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear? And he answered him, go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. Now you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's exactly what they said. Verse 16, and the king said unto him, how many times shall I adjure you, or adjure thee, that thou tell me nothing but that which is true in the land, in the name of the Lord? I love this. Immediately, the king knew, yeah, you're not, you're not actually telling me the truth. So let's try that again. Okay, 17. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered upon the hills. Now, pay attention to the next words. As sheep that have not a shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let them return every man to his house in peace. Now, the reason that hit me so hard there is because we find two kings of Israel in a room full of prophets. And yet the one prophet who is actually listening to the voice of God comes in the room and says, hey, you're all going to fail because there is no shepherd in the house. I can understand why people didn't like him very much. Now let's turn over to Jeremiah. I'm just going to read two verses here and then we're going to kind of bring this to the New Testament and we'll wrap up here pretty quick. Okay, Jeremiah 31, verse 9. They shall come with weeping and with supplication will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it to the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Now, let's go to the New Testament. Because you have to see the beauty of Scripture and how that writers who may have never seen one another who were separated by thousands of years in some cases. And yet we see this amazing continuity that takes place through all of this. Listen to what Matthew 10 says, starting verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John 21, 15 through 17. So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, loves thou me more than these. Now, what story is happening right here? So Peter, at this point, Jesus has been resurrected. We know the story. Peter had denied Jesus three times after he was taken to be crucified, just as Jesus said what happened. So, same time that, that Peter denied him three times, Jesus, or Judas, I'm sorry, had betrayed Jesus. But the difference happens here. Judas chose the rope, and 
Peter chose repentance. And when Peter chooses repentance, God restores him. But when he does, he wants to make sure with no doubt whatsoever that Peter understood his purpose as a follower of Christ. Let there be no ambiguity. The one thing that he had to know before Jesus was saying, okay, now you can go, is what we find right here. He said, Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. We're going to watch a very short video here, and it's going to bring us actually to the end of our time. As soon as it's done, I'll close with one final thought. But look to the monitors here. The Psalms are some of the most beloved songs the world has ever sung. But this collection of melodies did not just fall out of the heavenlies in its final form of hymnody. The Psalms are rooted in history, particularly Israel's history and the story of her need for a king, which is why the Psalms are so closely tied to David. For he was the archetype, the paradigm of the king for whom Israel waited. In fact, the Psalms are even structured to look like the rising and falling course David's life took. But even though it is David's history that can be traced throughout the book, this shepherd of sheep, this writer of psalms, did not compose any of the psalms before the Spirit of God rushed powerfully upon him. And this rush would happen when the prophet Samuel came to David's family in Bethlehem. God told Samuel that David was the king he had chosen. David was the leader he had appointed. So, for the kingship and by the Spirit, David was anointed. And it is this choosing, this anointing, that is celebrated, commemorated, and anticipated throughout the Psalter's many pages. And David would need these anointed affirmations. For much of the time, his life situation did not seem to match God's vows of selection or salvation. David, after being anointed as king, was pursued by Saul, the man he would replace in the monarchy. David, who was anointed with God's promise to save, was forced to flee for his life to hide in a cave. And this would not be the only time David was on the run. Later in his life, his throne would be deposed by Absalom, his son. David was used to attempts against his life and persistent civic dissent, which is why the Psalms are filled with laments. 
Lament songs ask difficult questions. How long will I suffer? Why is this happening? Why won't God answer? Has God forgotten me? But sown into nearly every lament is the melody of God's promises, the notes of God's anointing. So David could find hope in his trials because there was a future to which his psalms were pointing. That future is seen in David's rise to royalty. For God's anointed king did take the throne. He did rule as God's hand. He did bring peace. He did follow God's commands. He did conquer enemies and drive them out from the land. And the Psalms capture these moments with songs thanking God for David's enthronement. Not because David got there alone, but because it pointed to the fact that God truly sat on the highest throne. But not even King David was free from sin, lust, and envy. For he committed murder and adultery to bring a married woman into his company. Even though he was God's anointed, he did not fill his calling perfectly. And so this made David question his original anointing. Did his sin mean that God was now at a distance? Did his transgressions mean God would now take his vengeance? Which is why David composed psalms of repentance, songs begging God for his forgiveness. But God did restore David to his position of prominence. When David was faithless, God remained faithful to his promises because that's who God is. And that is who the Psalms continually proclaim him to be with hymns, songs of praise and shouts of thanksgiving. But David wasn't the only one giving the people of Israel inspired songs for every part of life. David also gave the training and the right to write more psalms to some from the priestly tribe of the Levites. For the psalms are not only shaped by David's life, but God's people as well. So other inspired writers mapped the psalms onto the history of Israel. For like David, as a nation, they were chosen. As a race, they faced trials. As a country, they rose to power. And as a people, they did evil. So these songs were not just written by David or for David, but by God's people and for God's people. They were not just responses to David's experience, but those of all Israel. And so, the Levites continued David's Solomonic enterprise. They wrote through David's death and his son Solomon's rise. They wrote through the temple's construction and its corruption in God's holy sight. They wrote through their king's many rebellions and their kingdom's ultimate demise. They wrote through the loss of their homeland and their hope to return alive. So by the time the writing was done, Israel had no place to sing her songs. She had no king over her people. So she wondered how to hope in and speak to God, for she had lost access to her temple. 
but it was there, while they were in exile, that all the Psalms were compiled. Scribes, trained in the ways of the law, experts in Israel's history and David's songs, compiled the Psalms, and they ordered them in a way that would bring the people in exile the most hope. They structured them in the way that might spark faith and trust through the confusion and mystery. They were organized to repeat David's history. And the scribes did this in order to bring renewed expectancy that God would be faithful to once again install a king like David who would be the answer to every prayer the Psalms would teach them to sing. That is what those in exile needed. Songs to proclaim God's word when it seemed to be defeated. Songs to announce that God has been faithful and his faithfulness would be repeated. Songs to help the people repent, lament, and remember that there is still a heavenly throne on which God is seated. So in exile, when the Psalms were completed, they were sung as a way for Israel to have hope in the king for whom they waited. A new king who would bring them home and rebuild the temple. A new king like David. And so they waited. In exile, they languished, distanced from the promised land, separated from the temple where they could be near God and follow his commands. Yet anywhere the psalms were sung, Israel could hear the melody of God's anointed one. For the psalms extend the promise of a new king who would come, a new king who would be the answer to every prayer found in the psalms, a new king who was the melody present in every one of its songs. And that king is Jesus, the only one who not only sang but completed every line the psalmists sung. In every song of anointing, Jesus takes the ultimate throne. In every song of lament, Jesus is our consummate hope. In every song of enthronement, Jesus is the highest king. In every psalm of repentance, Jesus is our final peace. In every hymn, Jesus is the one we praise. In every thanksgiving, Jesus is the one we thank. We can sing of Jesus in every note, for he fulfilled every song the psalmists wrote. And now, those same songs that comforted Israel when they were sung or spoke are the same melodies that come to us today to renew our hope. For like Israel, we wait in exile and separation. We too are sojourners on this earth, longing for the coming kingdom's consummation, which is why we must take the Psalms and why we must pray them to meditate on what Jesus has done through his gospel's proclamation. And in the same way as Israel, we can be given a renewed expectation that this Jesus for whom we've waited will return and will fulfill every Psalm of David. All right, let's stop it there. So let's all stand.
Let me say this to close. Number one, a shepherd is not someone, not only someone who pastors over a church. Yes, God appoints pastors, absolutely. But if you're a dad, you're a shepherd. If you're a mom, you're a shepherd. If you have sheep, if you will, that are lost, people that you have influence over, you're a shepherd. And so my question to you is simply this. What song will dictate the type of shepherd that you will be? In the book of Psalms, it ends after all of that stuff that happened. The book of Psalms wraps up with this. Psalms 150. Praise ye the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the firmament of his power. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the psaltery and harp. Praise him with a timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and organs. Praise him upon the loud cymbals. Praise him upon the high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Whether you're in a phase of laments or worship, you're still called to praise the Lord. Thank you guys. Have a wonderful week, and I will see you all on Sunday.